Hey, welcome to episode number 188 of the podcast, More Than Bread. If you've listened to every one, each and every one of the previous 187 episodes, you deserve even more applause than I do. But thank you from the bottom of my heart. And if this is your very first taste of More Than Bread, welcome and thank you. I appreciate you investing some of your time in this endeavor. And what is More Than Bread all about? Well, simply put, it's all about the value of the word and words of God. We need more than bread to thrive in this life. We need, Jesus said, and before him Moses said, we need every word that comes from the mouth of God. Those are the words of God. And not only do we call them collectively the word, the Bible, the word, but even more importantly, Jesus was called the word. That's John's philosophical Christmas story. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And Jesus said that, that these words in this book, the Word of God, are written to draw people to himself. So the words of God point to the Word of God. I, I like to say it this way. It's almost like every time God opens his mouth, Jesus comes out. Now, before we dive back into the last chapter of Ephesians, remember we are in a chapter, a series that I've called Letters from Prison, four letters from Paul to his friends while he is in prison in Rome. Ephesians is the first, and and we're in the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. But before we jump back into Ephesians, just one more quick public service announcement of sorts. I, I try to make these episodes fairly timeless so that you could invite someone to go through the Gospel of John with you a few years from now and still find the 20 plus episodes on John John's Gospel helpful. But But having said that, I'm taking the month of December in 2023 and doing an Advent chapter. Why tell you this now? Because if you're listening to this episode and it's the end of November or even the beginning of December, you might want to pause in Ephesians, skip ahead, hang out in the Christmas chapter with me, and then go back and finish Paul's letters from prison. You don't have to. But if you don't, and you don't want to do Christmas in January or February or August, depending on when you find them, then you might need to take a break when you get to the Christmas chapter. Enough said. Let me read the next portion of Ephesians chapter 6. We're reading verses 5 through 9, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Here's what Paul says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, before I share the value of these words, let, let me let me hit what most of you are thinking, like slavery. Paul, why, why didn't why didn't you just say don't do it? Well, Tim Keller has a really good write up on this, but basically he explains that slavery in the Greco-Roman cultures of the New Testament wasn't like what we picture today. It was more like indentured servanthood. Don't think 17th, 18th, 19th century New World slavery, race based African slavery. That's that's not this. Historian Murray Harris wrote a, a book about what slavery was like in the first century Greco-Roman world. He says that in the Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They, they looked and lived like most everybody else, and they were not segregated off from the rest of society. In fact, it wasn't uncommon 
for slaves to be more educated than their owners. And they often held high high levels in, in whatever the business was, high managerial positions. From a, a financial standpoint, many slaves made the same wages as free workers and, and often were able to save enough money to buy their own freedom. In other words, they were not slaves for life. In contrast, New World slavery, 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery was, slavery was race-based, most often for life, and started with an act of kidnapping. So the point is, when you hear somebody say the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it didn't. Not the way we define slavery. It's not that. This passage is more applicable to work, to the marketplace, the work environment. So so I just start out with this question, how's work? How do you feel about your job? Studs Terkel, the author, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people about their jobs and recorded what they said in his 1974 book, Working. He wrote this in the introduction. He said, this book, being about work is by its very nature about violence, violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers and accidents, about shouting matches as well as fistfights. It's about nervous breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around. It is, above all or beneath all, about daily humiliations. To survive the day at work is triumph enough for the walking wounded among the great many of us. It is about a search, too, he wrote, for daily meaning as well as for daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than torpor, in short, for a a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Perhaps immortality, too, as part of the quest to be remembered was the wish spoken and unspoken of the heroes and heroines of this book. Now, I don't know. I I like to think that in the last 50 years, things have gotten a bit better, but I know that for many of us, it's not necessarily so. Surviving another day at work is more often the goal than thriving through my work. So I I think Paul's handful of words on work here are incredibly important and, and very valuable. So let me read them again, making a couple of contemporary substitutions. Employees, listen to your boss follow their wishes, submit to their instructions with respect and even a bit of fear, reverence, but mostly with sincerity of heart, integrity. And and here's the big one. Don't miss this. Work for your boss just as though you are working for Jesus. Don't be a good worker just to gain the favor of your earth boss, because if you only focus on them, you'll miss the main reward. Work for them as though you are working for Jesus, doing his will. Serve with all your heart as if you are serving the Lord, not people, because ultimately your paycheck is signed by God. And bosses, managers, and owners, treat your employees in the same way. Don't threaten them. Don't lord it over them. Don't boss them around, since you know that you both have the same boss, Jesus. And he shows no favoritism. He loves boss and employee equally well. See, it's that you're working for Jesus and Jesus is working for you perspective that turns work upside down. It has the potential to radically revolutionize everything that we do as work. When you read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, you can't miss Jesus at the heart of your job. Whatever you do doesn't matter. I once read this quote from a newspaper editor. They wrote, most people don't think that work could possibly have anything to do with spirituality. They assume that these two worlds cannot mesh. But if we bring our souls to work, then we can transform our work. That editor wasn't far off from Paul's words, but in reality, we can't help 
but bring our souls to work. And that's why work is so painful sometimes. And that's why we need Jesus at the heart of our work. Listen, as a boss, I know that obeying your boss is sometimes the most difficult part of your job. I mean, sometimes you know you have a better way, but the boss just won't listen. Sometimes, regardless of how you do it, you don't like what you do. But remember, that's the essence of submission. And Paul is in the midst of giving examples of spaces where we can practice the discipline of submission that he talked about all the way back in chapter 5. And and, and remember what submission is, biblical submission. We don't submit because we've been persuaded that the other person knows better. That's not submission, that's persuasion. We don't submit out of kind of this resignation of fine, let the baby boss have their way, but they'll see. I sure hope they find out that my way would have been better. I can't wait to give them that I told you so look behind their back. (laughs) That's not submission either. Remember, biblical submission is what happens when I disagree with you, but with my whole heart, I jump into doing it your way and I do everything I can to make you right. That's submission. And we're supposed to do that one for another. And here's the great part. Paul is talking about mutual submission in the context of being filled with the Spirit. There's something about submission that increases space in my soul for more of the Spirit's fullness. In other words, submission at work is a spiritual discipline that will ultimately increase the fullness of the Holy Spirit in you. That's why Paul can say, obey your boss just as you would obey Christ. Obeying Christ is at the heart of being a follower of Jesus, right? So what happens at work Let me say that again. What happens at work, (laughs) what happens at work is part of my journey of discipleship. They're not separate. In fact, according to one commentary, that qualifying phrase, with respect and fear, is always reserved in the Bible for God. So Paul's saying that the respect and reverence that we show to our bosses is really respect and reverence for God, for the Lord, for Jesus. It's all about working for and working with Jesus at work. And and listen, Paul is not just talking about having a positive mental attitude or playing some motivational mental game. It's a kingdom of God reality. It's like when you become a Christian, your company all of a sudden has a new owner. (laughs) Like, Like nobody else knows about it except you. But when we serve our boss at our company, we are serving the kingdom of God. I love the story that Howard Hendricks told. Howard was a, an author, a seminary professor, and he shared the story of a time when his flight is, was, was delayed. And, and most of us know what that's like. His fellow passengers were getting more and more irritated, and some of them were beginning to take it out, <clears throat> take out their frustrations on the flight attendants. Hendricks noticed how gracious and poised one of the flight attendants was. And and when they finally took off and she had a minute, he called her over and he commended her, complimented her and how she she walked through that. He he told her that he wanted to write a letter of commendation to the airline to tell them what a, a good job she had done. Her reply to him, I don't work for the airline. I work for Jesus. And this morning before I left for work, my husband and I prayed that I would be able to serve Christ in my job. And she did. She used her job to serve Christ. You know, back in the book of beginnings in Genesis, you remember part of the consequence for sin was that a curse was put on our work. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Once man sinned, God made work, even good work, hard work. But at the cross, Christ began to put an end to every curse. 
So even hard work in a dark workplace can be redeemed. When you start working for Jesus and realizing <laughs> that if you're a manager, that, that Jesus is, is actually kind of working for you, but undercover, it might be that nobody else knows that Jesus is there, but he is. He's working with you and for you and in you and through you and all around you. When you serve wholeheartedly with all your heart at work, when you serve with all your heart, whether anybody else realizes it or not, you're working for God. And listen to me, he's the one who signs your paycheck. He's the one who compensates you. He gives you good for the good you give. He rewards everyone for whatever good they do, Paul said. Uh, Lee Eckloff, in in a sermon, he, he wrote this. I love this. He said, when a Christian does his or her work as the will of God, it changes from simple work to sacred good. Good deeds are not just feeding the poor, sharing our faith at work. A good deed is when you do your job, no matter what it is, as a service to Christ with a whole heart and good intentions. And God compensates, Eckloff writes, God compensates your good with his good. And I found that God is endlessly creative with the good that he gives you in repayment for the good we do for him. It's hard to say what it'll be for you. It might be a life-changing relationship. It might be great influence. It might be the trust of your boss or a raise for good work. It might be a growing reputation or surprising opportunities. One thing it will certainly mean is a more Christ-like character within you, which is a great treasure in and of itself. And I would say, according to Paul, one thing that will result is you will increase the space in your soul and your life for more of the Spirit of God. See, there is such an intimate connection between faith and work. In fact, think about this. While the church might have been conceived in the upper room, it was birthed in the marketplace. Jesus, a carpenter, was at home in the marketplace, and he recruited his disciples from there, not the temple. Not a single one of the twelve was in vocational ministry. Paul, who joined the group later, was a rabbi, but as a follower of Christ, he also ran a profitable housing business. (laughs) He was a tent maker. The first followers of Christ saw the marketplace as their parish, as their church. There was no separation between secular and sacred. It all belonged to God. I could tell you as someone with a deep passion for revival that I do not believe revival will come. I do not believe the transformation of a community will take place without the transformation of the place where most of us spend most of our time. And yet none of those reasons are the most important reason for understanding the life connection between faith and work. The the most important reason is that we have a calling to prepare the world for the glory of God to be revealed. In Isaiah 40, the prophet writes, There is a voice calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, God's glory is the sum total of his goodness. This is an invitation to immerse yourself into the sum total of the goodness of God everywhere. There's not one square inch of creation which is beyond the glory of God, including the place where you work, including what you do. Can I work towards my PhD preparing the way for the revealing of the glory of God? Can I choose a major or career in a way that prepares the world for the glory of God? Can I invest in a business to prepare for the glory of God? Can I clean as a janitor, paint as an artist, write as an author, harvest as a farmer, teach as a teacher, lead as a CEO, design as an engineer, sell as a salesman, research as a scientist, and live my life, my whole life, preparing the way for the glory of God? 
with all my heart, I say yes, yes, and yes. Too many Christians might think that my job as a pastor is more important than your job. If you're selling widgets or fixing cars or cleaning dirty rooms, is that the case? The Bible does not come at it that way at all. In Ephesians 6, Paul changes the script. It isn't the task that defines the importance of our work. It's the worker and the boss. Nothing in these verses touches on what the job at hand is. It touches on the character of those involved in the work. I love the story of Emma Daniel Gray. Emma died on June 8, 2009, at the age of 95. On the office records of her business, her, her company that she worked for, her title reads Charwoman. Not chairwoman, charwoman. That's an old title, I think coming from the British, an old title that simply was reserved for ladies who cleaned offices. Your job is probably more important than that, right? But when she died, there was a huge story about her in the Washington Post. For 24 years, she was the charwoman for six different U.S. presidents. Each day, she cleaned the office of the President of the United States. But of course, we know whose job was more important, right? <laughs> not, not the charwoman, the, the president. But see, that's not true. Not if it's about who you serve and not about what you do. I mean, we all want jobs that are meaning, meaningful and fulfilling, and sometimes we get that, but not always. And yet we all have a calling from God, but the heart of our calling is not what we do. It's who we do it for, whom we serve. When we see our work as working for Jesus, it becomes kingdom work, eternally significant. What made Emma Gray's story all the more powerful to me was that she was a devoted Christ follower. She would stand, just picture this as I close. She would stand and pray over the president's chair every time she dusted it. Her dusting cloth in one hand, her other hand on the chair of the president, she would pray for blessings and wisdom and safety. After she died, her pastor said that Emma saw life through the eyes of promise. And I would be hard-pressed. And I think when we get to heaven, we'll all be hard-pressed to know which of those jobs <laughs> was more significant to Father God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for each and every person listening, for the work that they've done, for the work that they've had, for the work that they're doing, for the places where they work. God, would you impress upon us that no matter what we do, if we do it for you, it brings a sacredness to the place where we work. If you are our boss, if you sign our paycheck, then submitting to the people that we work for is just not that big a deal. <laughs> God, I, I pray for the workplaces. I pray for the marketplace. I pray, pray for every person where, where anybody listening has worked or will work, is working. God, would you bring revival there? God, as we submit to one another, as we practice the discipline of submission, would you fill us so full of the Holy Spirit that it overflows everywhere we go, everywhere we work, through everything that we do. May we be a blessing to those we work with and for. May you work through us in the marketplace. God, we pray for a revival of your glory in the marketplace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.